This is The Guardian. The government's latest asylum policy reached a big moment on Tuesday night. The first flight, which was then meant to carry only seven people to Rwanda, was cancelled at the last minute because of an intervention by the European Court of Human Rights. And now we're back to standard-issue Brexiteer attacks on foreign judges. There's been a different ruling from ECHR. I think the public will be surprised that European judges are overruling British judges, but that's a legal process. It all looks chaotic, but there is a whiff of a very deliberate mess here. The government has yet another chance to insist that it's acting tough on immigration. Meanwhile, contrary to the idea that Brexit is done, Boris Johnson is picking a fight with the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol. He wants to scrap key parts of an agreement that he signed. And now the EU is taking legal action against the UK government. Here's the European Commission Vice President, Maros Shevkovich. So let's call it a spade a spade. This is illegal. Is this the post-vote of no confidence Johnson era we dread, when his showmanship and willingness to break anything in his way has hit peak levels? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian columnist Raphael Baer and The Observer columnist and chief leader writer Sonia Soda. Hello to you both. Hello, John. Hi, John. Right, so uh, one of the sort of uh, minor political stories of the week, but quite amusing nonetheless... It's been the association of the Labour Party leader Keir Starmer with the word boring. On Tuesday, there was a headline in The Times that said, Stop boring everyone to death, Shadow Cabinet tells Starmer. And mere hours later, The Guardian went with, Stop calling me boring, Keir Starmer tells Shadow Cabinet. That's the two halves of the story. And I was thinking of the Pet Shop Boys song, Being Boring, which sort of conveys the idea that in Britain, probably like most places around the world, one of the worst things to be is boring. But he is. He just okay, is. so the, the problem here is that, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing to be boring in politics if you know that's potentially the antidote to sort of chaos and mayhem of, of Johnson government. I think the, the bigger problem, first of all, is being nothing at all, therefore you're a blank canvas yeah, onto yeah. which your enemies can project something. And also, as soon mm-hmm. as you try and not be boring, it's a bit like when someone you know, accuses you of not having a good sense of humour, trying to be funny. You can't be funny on demand. You can't be sexy on demand. These are things that you have to either be naturally or not at all. Before we come to Sonia, he, he was obviously taking exactly that sort of tack at Prime Minister's questions this week, trying desperately not to be boring by sort of hitting us with all sorts of cultural references. It was quite weird. Here's what happened. He thinks he can perform Jedi mind tricks on the country. (laughs) The problem is the force just isn't with him anymore. He he thinks he's Obi-Wan Kenobi. The truth is he's Jabba the Hutt. He's game-playing so much... He, he, he thinks he's on Love Island. <laughs> Trouble is, Prime Minister, I'm reliably informed that contestants that give the public the ick get booted out. Yeah. Sonia, your face was um, definitely contorting into all sorts of expressions there as he told us he's a pop culture kind of guy. They were just cringe, those puns, weren't they? And I think it was reflected in the sparseness of the laughter that we heard behind him. I think even his own front benches would have probably uh, felt a bit ick, to quote him, about those jokes. I think I uh, disagree with Raph a little bit in the sense, not on whether Keir Starmer is boring or not, because I think we probably are all three agreed on that. But um, there's a lot of talk about how perhaps the public would like somebody who isn't too sparky as the antidote to Boris Johnson. I don't think I buy that. I think one of the worst things you can be as a politician is just dull and boring. And I think one of our most 
arguably boring prime ministers in recent history was Theresa May and she got rejected actually by the voters when she went to the ballot box. So uh, yeah, I think it's very bad all round to be boring as a politician. I think in the social media age, you need a bit of charisma to stick. The problem with that clip wasn't the one pop cultural reference. You know, if you just stuck to the sort of jab of the hut line, I thought that was quite good. It was piling it all on saying, you want pop cultural references? I've got tons of them. I've got more. I've got Star Wars. I've got Love Island. And it, it, it and then you start to lose the naturalness and the authenticity of it. I mean, I always thought it was quite interesting. I don't know if you heard when Keir Starmer did Desert Island Discs, his chosen luxury item was a football and one of his songs was Three Lions, which you might think was a sort of horribly naff focus group thing to say. But actually, that is really what he's like. He, you know, he plays five aside. He's a massive Arsenal fan. He's genuinely into the national game that everyone loves. And yet, even when he's authentically being into a thing that could be a point of connection with a lot of voters, somehow, because of his stiffness and his style, it comes across as artificial and confected. And I think that's presentationally quite a severe problem for him. If he can't even authentically be himself, then what what the hell is he going to be? Yeah, and also the allocation of boring, it's a deep boring here. What people mean is that there's no narrative, there's no story, they have no idea what he stands for, who is he, at the be- at best he looks opportunistic, at worst he looks completely empty and so on. Do you know what I mean? The, the yeah, word, absolutely. The word boring contains... Multitudes. Anyway, uh, this week we are going to look at the government's tough talk on Rwanda and its um, refugee policy and where all that's going. And then we'll talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol, the government's attempts to change it or bin it, and the ramping up of tensions between the UK and the EU. Let's talk about Rwanda first. The government's um, policy of sending uh, refugees to Rwanda has been criticised by archbishops privately and then it broke into the public realm. Prince Charles said the policy is appalling, I think was his chosen word. Um, And now the government's plan to deport refugees to the African country in question has been thwarted at the 11th hour by the European Court of Human Rights. Um, It's worth recapping on what we know about the people who were meant to be on that flight. The reason that flight was cancelled at the last minute is because the European Court of Human Rights um, decided in favour of one of the refugees, which allowed all the others to make last minute pleas. And I think I'm right in saying that the delay was was triggered by the case of an Iraqi man who's 54 who claimed asylum in the UK, citing danger to his life after arriving by boat across the English Channel. And he was told the Home Office was relocating him to Rwanda. But a doctor at a detention centre suggested he may well have been a victim of torture, which sort of underlines this awful moral grimness sitting at the heart of this policy. Now, the other thing to to talk about here is what exactly the government wanted here because there's a sense that this policy was intended to essentially be performative that is to say it's not about results and things actually happening it's the our old friend our increasingly familiar friend when it comes to Boris Johnson of the drawing of lines not many people we hear in the government believe that the, the flight in question would take off that it was just an excuse really to kick up a big stink and remind a certain part of the electorate where the government was and who its enemies were in this case lefty judges and sort of liberal opinion and Europe, 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 the eternal bogeyman. Although, just to make this clear, everyone listening no doubt knows the European Court of Human Rights is not a creature of the EU. The two things are very distinct. You wonder really whether Boris Johnson is picking a fight he thinks he can win ahead of the next election. This is what Boris Johnson said on Tuesday about this sort of rising sense that Britain might try at least to withdraw from the European Convention and the European Court of Human Rights. What we want to do is to show the people traffickers that... Uh, they're, they're breaking the law, they're risking people's lives, and it won't work anyway. Now, uh, if, will it be necessary to ch- change some laws to help us uh, as we go along? It may very well be, and uh, all these options are under constant review. 
There you go. I mean, obviously, the UK and the Conservative Party in particular has a history with the European Court of Human Rights. Theresa May and David Cameron both float with the idea of cutting ties to it. Here we are post-Brexit. What's going on, Raf? Well, first of all, that clip, I mean, it's just utter drivel, isn't it? It We've got to show, what we're going to do is show the human traffickers that they're breaking law. I think they know they're breaking the law. Look, I mean, what you say about how performative it is and, you know, is the government happy to have this row? Up to a point, yes, obviously, you know, if if you get to cast your enemies as lefty human rights lawyers and European judges, worst of all, you know, infringing on, on British sovereignty, I think there are an awful lot of people in this country who intuitively won't like the idea of people who aren't judges who aren't British telling a British government, elected government, what it can and can't do, particularly on the policy of migration. I think that's a big deal. There, there will also be a lot of people in this country who will will find that this sort of fa- slightly fails a moral smell test on a different level, will, will be more intuitively in the position of, of archbishops and, and the Prince of Wales thinking, actually, there is a concept of sanctuary and asylum. And as you say, in this case, these are people who, who are victims of torture. On top of that, I'm not persuaded that you know, if you're going to pick a fight to def- give yourself def- definition with the electorate on this issue, it, you're going to choose something where it ends up making you look like you can't actually achieve your goal. So even if the policy was going to work as a deterrent to people trafficking, which it won't, yeah. to actually advertise your own impotence and inability to deliver this in the process, I'm not sure the cost-benefit analysis of that politically actually works for Boris Johnson the way he maybe thinks it does. Now, obviously, we talk about this from the perspective of sort of died-in-the-world lefty liberals and quite rightly we're sort of morally appalled by it but the polling does suggest that there's a chunk of the electorate quite a significant chunk of the electorate that supports the idea of sending refugees to Rwanda there was some YouGov polling done recently that said that um, 44% of people sampled supported the policy 40% opposed it and among conservative voters 74% of people supported this policy so in that sense in the most awful way you know it might be politically rational for them to do this Well, I think you have to be cautious about some of those polls, actually, because as is so often the case with polling, it depends very much on how you frame the question. The way that the government is framing this is to be about deporting illegal migrants. Um, That's their framing. And I think that that's probably some of the language that some of the polling has used. But actually what they're talking about is deporting victims of torture who've come here to seek refuge. So I think we need to be careful about that. I think what Johnson is trying to achieve, though, is basically what the Tories have realised is they need to do everything they can to keep the next election off the territory of the economy. And obviously that's very difficult because the cost of living crisis is dominating. Yeah, good luck with that. But that is, that is the strategy here. They're trying to pick lots of culture wars fights, even before the cost of living crisis the Tories wanted to sort of try and make the territory of the next election as much on these culture wars issues as possible it's why we've seen Johnson you know pick fights with people who topple statues and university common rooms for not putting up pictures of the Queen or whatever but even more so now with the cost of living crisis Johnson is trying to pick the fights to keep it off the economy I think that's what's going I don't think it will work but that's what he's trying to do I mean one thing I would just uh, tack on to what, what Sonia just said I mean it, there's something actually potentially quite dangerous about what what Johnson is doing here in terms of you know, ramping up this classic animosity to the idea of in quotes of uncontrolled migration and then not being able to show that you can get on top of it I mean that's exactly what Which the, is Cameron's great well, exactly that's what the Tories did you know they had they had caps that they 
kept busting and they had limits that they kept breaking. And what that fed was essentially the, the UKIP backlash, which then became the, the Brexit party, took a huge chunk out of the Conservative vote. Now, if for whatever reason that starts to come back up and there's some new Faragist movement gets any traction, you could easily see the Tories polling in the 20s if they start to lose 15% of their vote to, to this some new right-wing threat. That's a totally feasible scenario, I can imagine, in the next couple of years. But elsewhere in the electorate, there's um, a part of the Conservative vote traditionally, which it seems to me increasingly probably doesn't like this sort of hardline, nasty, very sort of fanatically Brexit-y voice that it hears from the Conservative Party and is beginning to sort of peel away. You've seen that in by-election results and local elections recently. We were in... Um, in Tiverton in Devon on Monday, and you could pick that up. And and I think they've got the Tories have more to worry about electorally when it comes to those people than they do among this very vocal but probably relatively small element that thinks all its Christmases have come at once. The more nasty the government is, right? They should worry more about the liberal aspect of their vote. Um, now let's talk about the Labour Party. The Labour Party expresses opposition to this, but if you es- essentially see this as a question of morals, which like the future king, ha ha, I do. And I'm sure you do as well. That element is missing from what the Labour Party says on the whole about this, isn't it? It talks about the fact this policy doesn't work. I mean, this might be a bit naive on my part because I know what, how politics works. and I know the coalition the Labour Party is holding together. But it's a shame that that voice is confined to senior clerics, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And Prince Charles. No, I agree. I think, as you know, going back to what you were saying about the, this bit of the electorate that is essentially, crudely speaking, small L liberal, maybe centre right on the economy, but essentially these are people. These are people who become sponsors through the Homes for Ukraine scheme, right? They yeah, understand. Yeah. The, the idea of asylum and sanctuary. And I think it is perfectly available to an articulate Labour politician to stand up and say, you know, what you're talking about here is victims of torture. What you're talking about here is is people who have turned to our country, our nation, because they see us as a fount of justice and decency. And we should be opening our arms to them and helping them and not shipping them, you know, thousands of miles away and washing our hands of them. The other point which probably repulses voters like that is this impression which as we speak even seems to be growing more and more vivid, that the government probably does want to leave the European Convention and the European Court of Human Rights and these things that were created by, among other people, Winston Churchill. I mean, we are in sort of mind-boggling territory here. And this post-Brexit sense that we don't really care about international agreements and international standards and international rules, weirdly against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine, which is about somebody, Putin, behaving precisely in defiance of all that. I mean, God, the worst possible moment to behave like this. I mean, that's another aspect of it, which perhaps the Labour Party, it would be nice if it made more of it. But again, I don't hear it so much. I mean, I, I, I agree with everything that Raf said, um, but I think the problem with the Labour Party has been actually it's never had the moral clarity to make the case for Britain's international obligations around refugees and around asylum. So actually, some of the roots of what we see the Conservative Party doing today actually stem from, you know, 13 years of Labour government, where actually Labour politicians in government um, kind of made scapegoats out of asylum seekers. We're talking then about the era of Labour Home Secretaries talking about bogus asylum seekers. I mean, that's when all that really got going. Yeah, and, and, you know, don't forget, it was Labour who experimented with, with, with withdrawing cash support to asylum seekers altogether and replacing it with food vouchers. So um, Labour's never had the moral clarity on this. And I think it's a great shame because I actually agree. If you look at opinion polling, 
and very good opinion polling that polls people on different dimensions, actually what we see is that the, the number of people who are outwardly hostile to um, you know people who don't look like them or of different faith to them um, who come to this country is actually gone down uh, if you look at polling by people like Hope Not Hate. So I think there is really, really the space for a political party to say, look, immigration and asylum and refugees are two completely different systems and we need to be having different conversations about them and not confusing them. But Labour has never had the moral clarity to do that. I mean, I suppose what the Labour Party would say in response to that is, well, that's all very well. And of course, quietly, we share those principles. But we all know the sorts of places we lost and the sorts of voters we lost to the Tories in 2019. And although they may be conflating questions of immigration and asylum wrongly and all the rest of it, it's not quite as simple as saying to them, look, we have to be more moral and we have to treat people better and all that. I'm not, I mean, as, as that's coming out my mouth, I'm no, not, okay, but I don't I, like but John, it. I, I, right. I don't think... Obviously, there is going to be a segment of the electorate that really just doesn't like foreigners and will like policies that are aggressive towards them. Clearly, that is a segment, but that has been a perennial part of British politics for as long as anyone can remember, and it was always part of the fringe. And now, actually, where it comes into terrain where you know, the Labour Party is looking for voters... What the left often gets wrong on this is that people's main concern is fairness, not race, right? And what they didn't like was the sense that the doors were wide open, that anyone could come, anyone could come and use the NHS, claim benefits, rightly or wrongly. There might have been some lots of mythology and misapprehension about that, but that there wasn't a system. And there is a fairness argument you can make about this, which is, you know, everyone recognises the need to accept refugees. This is a small number of people who need our help. And that's a fairness argument that will play with all, with the voters across the spectrum if it's articulated well by someone who can do it with capability. Yeah, and the other, the other point is that at a time when people can't pay the, their bills and food inflation is going through the roof, why on earth expend much political energy trying to contort yourself in all sorts of awful shapes about this? Talk about the stuff that really matters to people. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like withdrawing from the, the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights and the European Convention, it literally puts you in the company of uh, Russia. What that tells you about what's lacking from political argument is somebody, and it's not a very difficult job, to actually tell the truth about post-war history in a way that Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson don't and say, look, the European Court of Human Rights came precisely out of our struggle against Nazism and Winston Churchill was centrally involved and it's as British as they come, right? And, and, and to desert it would be awful in many respects, but as much as anything, if you've got an iota of understanding of post-war history, you'll know how awful I've got is. a sweet seg for you to your next section here, though, as well, oh. because actually, in any case, we're not going to leave the European Convention or the European Court of human rights because those are the foundations also for the good friday agreement in terms of like peace in northern ireland and if their government claims to be supporting that it is johnson's lying he's not going to do it johnson lying surely not right more of this after the break Welcome back. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, One week after Boris Johnson won, not entirely convincingly, some would say, his vote of no confidence, he is fighting to re-establish his authority. And judging by this week's political headlines, he thinks one of the ways he's going to do that is to open the Brexit wars again. And one of the ways he's going to do that is by picking a fight over his own Northern Ireland protocol, the thing he agreed to and signed on the dotted line for, with the introduction of a new bill threatening to rip it apart. We should talk, first of all, 
about what's actually in the bill? Well, essentially what the bill does is it overrides large parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol and it does it unilaterally. So the most important aspect of it uh, that was agreed in the Northern Ireland Protocol is the need for customs checks in the um, Irish Sea as a result of making sure that there's no border on the island of Ireland. And what this bill would do would unilaterally override the need for customs checks for goods that are going from the UK to Northern Ireland and aren't intended to be sort of distributed throughout the rest of the European Union. So that's the most important bit, I think. Okay. now Boris Johnson tells us he thinks the adjustments are not really a big deal. In Northern Ireland, the uh, Stormont Assembly, the government of Northern Ireland, uh, can't meet because of the effects of the protocol. What it does is it creates unnecessary barriers on on trade east-west. What we we can do is fix that. It's not a big deal. Uh, We can fix it in such a way as to remove those bureaucratic barriers, but without putting up barriers on trade moving north-south in the island of Ireland uh, as well. There were so many lies just in that clip alone. <laughs> it's amazing. Nice it's really thing. impressive. Right. First of all, the reason Stormont can't meet is because uh, the DUP, Democratic Unionist Party, is refusing to join power sharing uh, with Sinn Féin. The DUP came second in a Stormont election. A majority of parties in that assembly support the protocol. In terms of the economic effect of the protocol on Northern Ireland, the most recent GDP data for across the UK show that Northern Ireland is the only region outside London that is still growing because it enjoys privileged access to the single market. It's an, an amazing, amazing fact. That. And what's more, mm. the the bill that he's talking about also goes off and starts like uprooting European court jurisdiction and dealing with the tax harmonisation powers. It's clearly been dictated by English Tory Eurosceptic ultras via Liz Truss and isn't anything to do with actually settling the problems of Northern Ireland and the protocol. We'll come on to that in a minute. Sonia, his brand, or what remains of it, sort of in the wake of the 2019 election, was that he got Brexit done. They still talk about that. I mean, Tories say, oh, well, vaccine rollout and he got Brexit done. They're the two things they talk about. And here he is undoing it. I mean, it's sort of crazy in that sense even even if um even if you're looking at what's what's in his best interest and 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 how cynical he, he may or may not want to be this is a daft move for him well the problem is is that he signed up to something that he blatantly lied to the british public about and said he wasn't signing up to so back when he signed up to the northern ireland protocol he said it wouldn't involve checks down the irish sea Now, it was there in black and white. It did involve checks down the Irish Sea. So his problem now is that the political reality, so we've been in a transition period with the Northern Ireland Protocol, the political reality of what it actually means is starting to hit. And so he's in a position where, you know, either he sort of admits that he got it wrong or he has to say, he has to continue lying and saying, look, you know, this this agreement isn't quite working out in the way that we thought it would and there is a better way. It just, I mean, it just gets to the very sort of heart of the worst conundrum at Brexit, which is there is no way to avoid a border either on the island of Ireland or down the Irish Sea, some form of customs checks and have a hard Brexit, you know, have a clean break with the EU. Like, you just cannot do it. You cannot make it happen. It's impossible. But all along, I mean, this is cakeism. We were lied to. We were told, oh, no, it's perfectly possible. We can have our clean break and we can make sure that there aren't any border checks anywhere. 
So, um, you know, this is just reality biting, really. Uh, of course, Brexit wasn't done because this was a massive, massive unresolved issue. And it is going to continue to be a massive issue. Um, and, you know, I have to say, when you take a step back, so we've got the EU now readying itself you know, to take legal action. And many people would say, fair enough, that, you know, Britain is threatening to break the terms of an international agreement. But this sort of trade escalation with the EU is the very last thing we need, given what's happening in the British economy. The fact that that we know we've been predicted to have no growth next year. Countries that are experiencing growth are experiencing export-led growth. We've got none of that. And it's because of Brexit and a trade escalation with the EU is going to make it even worse. And even if there are things to be resolved, which there clearly are about the Northern Ireland Protocol, there are other ways of doing it. There are um, processes in the agreement, as I understand it, whereby things can be negotiated on as they come up. That The EU um, has floated very seriously the idea of a green lane for uh, goods traffic between Great Britain and Northern Ireland so that those checks either won't be there or will be sort of lighter and so on. It's you know There's no need for him just to go from naught to 60 here, is there? Although, as he sees it, there is. Well, there are two dimensions to this. Yeah, the Commission has published its position paper saying, OK, we, we sort of agree that it, it is politically tricky and therefore we need to find ways to sort of de-dramatise the checks in a way that might satisfy the grievances of, of the unionists. That might not go far enough because, you know, as we know, the DUP in particular are pretty hard to satisfy politically. That's one issue where Liz Truss, as Foreign Secretary, was supposed to be negotiating. And she's obviously very, very bad at negotiating. Even her allies in the Conservative Party say she's not someone who negotiates. She just sort of hectors and has her position. On top of that, there is ultimately, you know, remember not that long ago we were talking about using Article 16, uh, which is the bit of the treaty itself that says if we think this is not working, we can basically activate it and say, OK, we're suspending uh, the operation of this treaty. But the problem is that then leads to arbitration still under the auspices of the treaty itself. And OK, this gets a bit fiddly, but it's important because the decision not to use Article 16 absolutely destroys the government's legal defence in terms of saying they're justified in breaking an international treaty. Because what they say is there is this doctrine of necessity, which means that if a, a treaty is basically wreaking such terrible harm uh, on a country by no fault of its own, it, it, it is able to basically just abrogate the treaty uh, if there is no other recourse. And then literally in the next paragraph of that defence, it mentions Article 16, the available recourse, which the government has chosen not to use. Right. So they, they, legally, right. they don't have a leg to stand on. Politically, for the reasons you know discussed that we know about Boris Johnson's leadership and within the Conservative Party and the, all the Brexit hardliners whom Liz Truss is courting because she fancies being the next Prime Minister of Great Britain, those are the factors that have decided this, not actual Brexit. Um, right, you mentioned Liz Truss several times then. I mean, one of the one of the most sort of interesting and awful, arguably, aspects of all this is um, the idea that Liz Truss has been absolutely at the heart of drafting this legislation, and, and she's done that in cooperation with Brexit hardliners from the European Research Group. And I read in today's Financial Times, I'm sure this story's in other places as well, that... Um, Last week, Boris Johnson snapped at Liz Truss for ceding too much ground to the Brexit hardliners in the last-minute drafting of the bill, claiming she risked hardening the government's position so much that further EU negotiations would become impossible. I mean, I, you know, who wants Bill Cash and Steve Baker? Not, you know, it's bad enough that they're there, arguably, let alone that they're drafting the legislation. Well, I think, you know, this is what happens when you have an incredibly weak Prime Minister. And, you know, we did have a time when Boris Johnson was in a relative position of strength straight after 2019 because, you know, he had this 80 seat majority. But he is very weakened now. And of course, groups like the ERG are going to see it as their opportunity 
um, to kind of get their way. So uh, unfortunately, I think this is just a feature of having a prime minister that a significant chunk of his MPs want out. But Terra families, well, they're never going to be satisfied. These are the people famously uh, who said this of uh, Tory Brexiteers and Eurosceptics that they won't take yes for an answer. Whatever you come up with, they never like it, ultimately. Well, of course not, because what they want is a world in which the EU single market isn't relevant to the success of the British economy Mm -hmm. and where the UK has total political and diplomatic parity or supremacy over a block of 27 countries representing a market of 500 million people. That is not available to them. So they will never be satisfied by any deal that recognises reality. And it's just it's just bonkers, really, because it, it pulls exactly against where the country should be going economically. So, you know, I don't know if any of us remember, but in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, George Osborne, as, as shadow chancellor, said he was going to rebalance the British economy and he was going to take us away from this, you know, um, consumer debt fueled growth towards a model of export led investment led growth. Now, to do that, that would absolutely rely on our relationship with our biggest trading partner the eu um but we, we're just like literally driving you know a coach and horses uh, through that it's interesting these are arguments that you'd like to hear maybe from the from the uh, traditionally pro-european perhaps left of center part of politics and at the moment in this very sort of weird contorted way we're hearing them from eurosceptics daniel hannan the arch brexiteer for example is, is advocating britain rejoining the single market you know those worries are surfacing but they're surfacing in the wrong place anyway i just wanted in conclusion to talk about something raf mentioned earlier which is so far overlooked about the dangers of a british withdrawal from the european convention on human rights and the european court of human rights those things are central to the Good Friday Agreement. This is much missed, and already voices in Northern Ireland, which last made this point in 2016, actually, are making this point again, that that heightens the danger. And, more to the point, actually, is something that runs between kicking off about the um, European Court of Human Rights in relation to Rwanda and what they're doing in Northern Ireland. And I find that sort of terrifying, that they're prepared. I mean, in 2016, moving away or binning Uh, the ECHR, was talked about in terms of ripping up the Good Friday Agreement. Well, I I think this comes down to a distinction that is really absolutely fundamental to everything that's happened in British politics in 2016, which is between Brexit as a kind of theological concept about British renaissance in the world and Brexit, the actual practical thing that is withdrawing from the European Union and ending membership of the European Union. Those are two completely different things. So in terms of the politics that we were talking about earlier, you have a situation where what Boris Johnson wants is the political win from expressing Brexit in that first sense. But what he doesn't want is the colossal ball ache that is actual real world Brexit. This is why you have these Brexiteers now deliberately, willfully conflating the EU uh, and the ECHR and all these institutions under the word Europe, because what they're talking about is this kind of reclamation of a British strategic primacy that isn't bound by international law and rules. And then when they talk about Northern Ireland and say, well, obviously, we're actually doing this because we actually support the Good Friday Agreement, they are simply lying. Because if it was, they wouldn't have been in this position in the first place. And they certainly wouldn't have advocated Brexit uh, for the sake of Northern Ireland. And the, the point is to nick something from a column you wrote recently, Raf. The sense you get now is of a government campaigning against reality. These are the real consequences of what the government wanted. And there's no getting around them. And yet they're telling us, they're telling us that somehow they can be sort of fought away. With enough oomph and, and British daring do, we can deny reality. And do you know what? At the time, I remember sort of writing in Observer editorials as well. This is the problem with 
populism. It eats itself. You know, it doesn't sustain over the long term unless it turns into autocracy because populism is based on making, you know, populist pledges to the people that don't accord with reality, that aren't grounded in the real challenges that a society faces and don't offer any real solutions. And that is exactly where Johnson and the Conservatives have found themselves. And I personally, you know, I I don't think Brexit is going to be a big issue at the next election, but I certainly think that the economic pain caused by Brexit absolutely will be. I mean, the forecasts are, it's not 5% off our GDP already. That is absolutely crazy at a time when we're facing the cost of living crisis that we are and the growth crunch that we are. These are things that are going to have real impacts on people's wages, on business costs, for example. It affects real people. Now, people may not connect it up with Brexit, but my God, the Conservatives are going to feel the pain of that at the next election. And, you know, it's been a long time coming. Might feel the pain of it next week. Two by-elections, which the next Politics Weekly podcast will be all about. We were out reporting in Tiverton and Honiton constituency this week, uh, and we'll be in Wakefield before that one goes out. And I think then we'll see, because actually the people we spoke to did talk about the cost of living. Partygate was still kicking around and so on. Nobody talked about all this stuff. I mean, admittedly, we didn't ask them that many pointed questions about it, but it didn't come up unprompted. And I wonder whether all of this will look very, very arcane and sort of a bit fiddling while Rome burns and therefore sort of increases the chances of Johnson and his government doing pretty badly at these by-elections. I'd certainly be interested to know whether and with whom saddling up for battle reenactment like it's 2019 on Brussels actually plays well. I mean, I understand that you know, with Jacob Rees-Mogg, but that's one vote. And actually, I don't know, it, there is this assumption that somewhere in Downing Street, there's some you know, angry Australian strategist who's got this all worked out and this is, and actually understands better than anyone in the UK what the British electorate will do if the wedges are driven in the right way. But I'm, I'm still a bit sceptical about that. I think they might be making some just good old-fashioned, stupid political mistakes here. The answer to some of these questions about who these people are this is playing to, I might have the beginnings of an answer to it. I think just after the referendum, when it, it was kicking around that there might be another vote and so on, the fellow from Weatherspoons, Tim Martin, did a tour of his own pubs. Do you remember this? When he was making the case, for, I think for a no-deal Brexit was what he was doing. And the pub would open early and in would come all these people who were Tim Martin. And they were angry men of a certain age who just really wanted to throw Europe into the sea. They just wanted rid of it somehow. And they made a lot of noise. But I suppose what gives me hope in terms of the resolution of a lot of these questions is there's a lot less of those people than Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage and Jacob Rees-Mogg think there are. And he's got to get them out of the Weatherspoons on polling day as well. That's and the a lot of them point. might just stay at home. So in that sense, I don't know. I always try to end these podcasts on a note of optimism. Mm. Maybe this isn't going to maybe this isn't going to fly Sonia, that's the point. Well, no, I think the note of optimism is that things are looking increasingly bad electorally for the Conservatives. <laughs> that's a great the optimism is everything's turning to shit. But I mean, it does rely on, you know, this brings us back to the question that we you know, started with to some extent, it it does rely on Labour being able to take advantage of it. But, you know, there's no way that the Conservatives are going to be in government for another 10 years. At some point, this is going to start to shift. And then I think, for example, in terms of our relationship with the EU, I think with a Labour government, of course, it will improve. And of course, we will start to move closer to the EU economically again and may well even find ourselves back in the single market in a couple of decades time. In the meantime, Labour Party, stop being boring. 
This podcast is never boring. I can say that safely. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's entertaining and decidedly non-tedious episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts, and even better, leave us a review, preferably a nice and non-boring one. This episode was produced by Natalie Katena. The music was by Axel Cacoutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. You can hear from us in Devon and Yorkshire next Wednesday. This is The Guardian.